0: Welcome to the Divorce Podcast, where we explore all aspects of ending relationships, separation and parenting apart. If your marriage or partnership has ended, or you have friends and family who are separating, this podcast is for you. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor, divorce specialist and co-founder of Amicable, the online legal service for separating couples. In each episode, we look at relationships and separation from different angles, including the emotional, legal, and social. I'm joined by experts and special guests who share their own unique stories, experience, and tips with the goal of helping people end relationships in a kinder and better way. In this episode, I was joined by Catherine Woodward-Thomas. Catherine is an award-winning licensed marriage and family psychotherapist and New York Times best-selling author of Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Even After. She's perhaps best known for having coined the phrase conscious uncoupling, famously used by Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin to describe their separation in 2014. I began by asking Catherine to define conscious uncoupling and also what led her to becoming a marriage and family psychotherapist. We talked about the notion of fairness being hardwired into our brains and how becoming conscious of different emotions and feelings such as guilt, shame and anger was important in the healing journey. Catherine talks about how conscious uncoupling takes work and self-reflection and also some of the barriers that prevent people from achieving it. We explore the stages of conscious uncoupling and what to do if your ex-partner is resistant spoiler alert, you can do this on your own. We finished by chatting through an example of how to de-escalate conflict situations with an ex using Catherine's three-stage technique of apology, acknowledgement and amends. This is my absolute go-to episode for anyone wanting to separate in a kinder and better way. If you loved this episode, then please subscribe and rate us on your preferred listening platform. Catherine, I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Thanks very much for joining us and welcome.
1: Oh, thank you, Kate. It's my honour to be with you. I'm so impressed with everything that you're creating for people. So
0: thank you for having me. That's really kind. I guess, Catherine, you're probably best known in the UK for bringing the phrase conscious uncoupling To hear. But before we go into that and you talk to us about what that means, just maybe tell us a little bit about how you became a marriage therapist and your journey to this kind of expertise.
1: I think it started really with my parents' ugly divorce and the kind of animosity that traded hands for years that really colored my upbringing and influenced a lot of the relationships that I then had in my early adulthood. When I struggled with a lot of very, you know, heartbreaking patterns where I was longing for love, but didn't trust love. So that creates a lot of push pull in out high stakes dramas. I had a particular fascination with married people, engaged people. So kind of any unavailable kind of love. And and that seemed to be what found my way to my doorstep, which I now know as a psychotherapist is what we call being love avoidant. We are hungry for love, but you do all sorts of things to destabilize it or to set it up not to take in the first place. So it was really, I think most relationship experts start off, you know, with their own deep wounding and on their own personal development path to heal their hearts and see if they can transform how relationships go for them. And and that really colored my whole journey to becoming a therapist and to writing the two books that I have. And uh, I think when conscious uncoupling, when Gwyneth Paltrow popped it into the lexicon and it was in the dictionary the next day as redefining divorce in the 21st century, I think that was one of the the peak moments of my entire life that I was able to take that horrible experience and make something so of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that whole phrase, I remember that was literally the first time I ever went on the radio as a therapist and was asked about it. And I had to explain what conscious uncoupling was, you know, the day after it had, had been sort of spoken about in the press, which was quite a memory for me as well. And it was just such a a revolutionary phrase and a revelatory phrase at that point, because no one had really been talking over here, certainly about that kind of relationship breakup and to be fair nobody had really talked about the breakup of a relationship um the breakdown of the relationship and then the divorce were very separate and different things and very different people were involved in those two things and it strikes me that what you did was that phrase effectively bridges the gap between two events that are clearly very linked but until that point in time had been serviced by a completely separate group of people so Catherine, what do you mean by conscious uncoupling?
1: So conscious uncoupling is really a divorce or a breakup that's characterized by a commitment to find our way to peace, to do the least amount of damage to ourselves and to each other, and of course, to our children to do one's best to be generous and to build the post-divorce relationship in a positive way. So it's not really in our hardwiring to separate in peaceful ways, as we can all see. We have a tendency to go into fight or flight. We go to war because our brains and our biology are really programmed to go into to high alert high threat state, which I think is really kind of an evolutionary hybrid from, you know, a thousand years ago, if you wandered away from your tribe, you probably would die. And those feelings are still present for us. So how do we navigate all of those big emotions that kind of can take us over and a lot of times take us out? Even the will to, or the desire to retaliate or to hurt the person who's hurting us, which is so normal, but very unfamiliar to a lot of us who would ordinarily aspire to an amicable breakup. So conscious uncoupling is a bit of a play on words in the sense that it's how do we stay conscious through this? How do we navigate those big emotions and use them as the fuel For positive change in our lives, for growth, for evolution, how can we take personal responsibility without collapsing into self-hatred and shame? Where we're not blaming ourselves and we're not blaming the other person. How can we use that breakdown to help foster our own healing and our own development beyond maybe some of the wounds of our past that are showing up again in the present? And then, how do we bring all of that consciousness? to the relationship so that we're breaking up in a way that is in alignment with our ethics as opposed to our very overwhelming emotions? And then finally, how can we be free of it? How can we end up on the other side of this, trusting love even more, trusting ourselves even more to love in a more wholesome, healthy way on the other side of this breakup?
0: It sounds like a no-brainer doesn't it? It sounds so obvious. Why would you want to do it another way? And yet, although it's, it sounds very straightforward when you explain it like that, it's clearly hard for people and people struggle to do it. What do you think are some of the barriers to achieving that kind of separation that you see most often?
1: Well, that's a really wonderful question. I think, and I've obviously given it a lot of thought, one of the keys, I think, is how hardwired we are for fairness. And usually at the end of a relationship, it just feels so unfair. You know, the cost of maybe having given our childbearing years or, you know, finally trusting someone, making children with them, and now you only have them half time, or maybe, you know, everything you've ever Always worked for your whole life is now suddenly divided in half. I mean, it can be quite shocking the lack of fairness. And we really are hardwired for fairness. So we get very stuck in ruminating over what the other person has done. I think the other thing is that nature has hardwired us for bonding. We're kind of born to bond. So we don't have an organic way of separating peacefully. And in a way, we're kind of programmed then to go from what I call soulmate to soul hate. Because Hate is a very highly engaged state. So it's replacing a positive bond with a negative bond. And in nature's way, it's it's kind of keeping us still invested in that relationship and present in that relationship. You might not have seen somebody for three years, but you're talking to them all the time in your head. So you're still bonded with them. It's just a, a painful bond. The other thing that I think we're up against is that we're all kind of inside of this myth that we should all live happily ever after. So I researched this myth and I discovered, first of all, it's only about 400, a little over 400 years old, which means that it was created when the lifespan was less than 40 and people had very few options in life. They really were born in one place and generally you lived in that place and you died in that place. The other thing that was happening at the time is if you notice, happily ever after, it always ends with upward mobility. You have a commoner marrying into royalty, into nobility. When the myth was created, it was actually created in Venice, Italy in the late 16th century. And there was a law on the books that forbid a noble person from marrying a commoner. So there was no way out of the poverty, really, that people lived with. So they had this, Kavli Ever After initially came into vogue as an escapist fantasy, almost as a romance novel. Like we would eat up a romance novel. And then it just kind of spread like wildfire throughout the world. But now we hold it as the given standard. You know, God made the mountains, God made the sun, and God made relationships to live happily ever after and to have upward mobility. So here you are getting divorced and generally for a period of time, statistically, we have a period of downward mobility. We have to go from one household now to two households. there's an adjustment period. It's you know slated to I think statistically last for about two to three years for the average divorcing couple and it just kind of goes against everything that we have been hoping for, and we will measure ourselves against that standard and hold ourselves and each other accountable to it so that when our relationship ends, we go right into shame. I have failed at this. And I think it's inside the shame that we got stuck in never really being curious about how might I do this better? How
0: could you improve this situation? It's such a simple, lovely question, isn't it? To ask yourself when you're going through something like this, how might I do it better? I like that. Yeah. So it sounds like there are some societal norms that present barriers to doing this in a positive and happy way and it sounds like there are some internal emotional obstacles such as the shame you talked about or the sense of failure that stop us from ending relationships in a more positive way. Do you think that's about personality? Do you think anybody could consciously uncouple and come through on a positive journey or are there certain types of people for whom this just is never going to work? Well,
1: so I'm sure that you must see in amicable that there are people who are just seem better equipped to go through this. And um, those are folks that I would say are more, if you were looking at it through an attachment lens, they have more secure attachment. They don't tend to catastrophize failures. They have an orientation towards failures that's more developmental um, you know, someone like Carol Dweck, who distinguishes in her book, a fixed mindset versus a growth oriented mindset. So someone organically has a growth oriented mindset will definitely go through a period of sadness because that's just how it goes. We can't avoid Uh, a healthy grief process at the end of a relationship. But those who might have a more of a fixed mindset, or if you want to look at it from attachment, again, the insecure attachment, uh, where there's been like early wounding, they're going to struggle more. And and I think the way that we struggle, and I I say we, because I've been through all of it myself. So I understand the journey. The way that those of us who've had more relational traumas in our history, move through a breakup, will have a tendency to go into what I call an insult to identity, meaning we will collapse into the shame of, see, I'll always be alone. I'm a person who is, you know, alone, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not wanted, or I'm not safe. So it will reinforce the old wounded story that we created when we were young. I call it your source fracture story. What conscious uncoupling does and this is actually the third step in conscious uncoupling, As I help people to really see that clearly. The I am and others are. I am invisible and other people don't really care about me. Or the I'm not wanted and others will always reject me. And to learn how to ask that part of themselves how old they are, how big the energy is in that story, and to notice that when they're centered in that story, that they tend to relate to others in ways that almost set people up to play their part in that
0: narrative. To keep that narrative going. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes. yeah. it feels safe, it's familiar, it's what you're used to. Yeah.
1: And I think the danger in a breakup when we do drop into these narratives is that we can really stay stuck in that for years because the other person, if they're not doing a, their work to do a conscious uncoupling, We'll likely be building a case against you and blaming you, or they have a story about you, or at least we're projecting that they do. So there's almost this sense that there's evidence now, and it's a fixed evidence because you're not working that through with that person. So you're kind of living with the residue of what you project that person is thinking about you. It's somehow you were not good enough. They chose someone else over you. And it's quite shocking when it happens because this is the one person that you met and partnered with just because they somehow held the promise of healing that wound. And instead, what this happened, they ripped the scab off of it instead. So these are the things that we want to use the breakup to get conscious of so that you can really work with that part of yourself and heal it at the core cuz it's right up right now because of the breakup and make more empowered meaning of the breakup and actually begin to identify ways to connect with that younger you and really wake yourself up out of that story so for example someone who thinks i'm not you know i'm not loved I'm not no one loves me to from your adult self will say well that's not really true i mean i have parents who love me i have children who love me i have very good friends and frankly i am learning how to love myself and i am a person who is worthy of love so we have to speak words of truth and begin to evolve our story forward that's one of the things that we <laughs> we're, we're looking at the other thing is is we really want to deconstruct shame Because shame is such a a quick go-to inside of our collective assumption of failure, you know, and you really can't grow when you're inside of shame. So we're looking to mitigate that by holding great self-compassion so that you can look at your part in the breakup in a way that's growth oriented, as opposed to in a way that's going to kind of just be more evidence for why this will never work for you.
0: So that's really interesting. Can you give us like an example of that? So what would be a kind of a shame statement that's orientated in something that's very static or negative versus something that's, you know, much more about that growth mindset? What What's the difference in sort of example terms?
1: Well, it's kind of the chronic inner conversation. Like, we're, you know, I mean, obviously, you, you well know that people are pretty traumatized when they're going through a breakup and they're kind of frozen in an inner conversation. And that dialogue is going to be something like, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep choosing people like this? Why doesn't anyone ever love me? Why do other people get to have love and not me? And it's kind of a closed loop. So I'm going to call that a shame-based conversation because it's fundamentally founded on this concept there is something wrong with me. And that's why this is happening versus a growth oriented inquiry, which might look like something like, gosh, I did that again. So how exactly did I give my power away to my partner? And what was motivating me to do that? And I'm going to say, well, I didn't trust myself. Well, what is it about me that I think is so untrustworthy? And what was my intuition telling me? And what might it have looked like if I followed my intuition? And what might that have generated? And what's the cost of not following my intuition? So all of these are growth-oriented inquiries. And you can see that you're going to be able to restore your ability to trust yourself and love moving forward if you can answer them properly.
0: It's fascinating because I suppose when I came to this conversation, I had in my mind that conscious uncoupling was about, you know, being able to move on from the present relationship into sort of new territory. But actually, it sounds like what you're saying is it gives you the opportunity to go back and to look at patterns and previous relationships and previous hurt as well. So it's giving much more than just a stepping stone into your new life. It's a real opportunity to look at the, your whole self, because I, I always say this to my kids, all roads lead to here. We are who we are because of all the other stuff that's happened, whether it's good or bad. And I love thinking about things in that way because I don't like the idea of regrets. So it, that just suits my narrative. So I guess that's actually really interesting what you're saying, because it's, it's making me think that this is such an opportunity to actually take stock and not just to look at this particular relationship, but look how this relationship has come about because of the past and the history, and it gives you so much more opportunity to explore and to take so much more of yourself forward. Is that have I got, have I got that right? I don't.
1: You do. I mean, the first three steps of conscious uncoupling, which is a five-step process, are all our own inner work. So, cause I, I, you know, we both, you and I both, we don't want people bringing their unresolved anger and hurt into the legal process because that's when they go through their kids' college account and they, you know, go through their retirement accounts really because of this, this isn't fair. I mean, there's, there's crazy stories that I'm sure, you know, most of us have heard of people who will spend $50,000, I'm American, so I'm going to talk in dollars or 50,000 pounds, you know, to, to save an assets. that's only worth 10,000 pounds. Yeah because it's the right thing. And that belongs yes,
0: to me. It's the principle of it's it. The yeah the that's, yes. that's what yeah, I mean yeah. by
1: hardwired for fairness. Yeah. So where we have to go really is to get a lot of juice out of that pineapple. Like you really have to get the cost of uh, some of the ways that we show up in relationship where we are not speaking up, not standing for our rights, tolerating for less, dismissing our own needs in service to having our first attention on others, you know, I like to say, even if it's 97%, the other person's fault, you really want to look at your 3% because that 3% is where we graduate. That's where we grow.
0: Well, that's the bit we've got control over ultimately, isn't it? Because trying to control somebody else's half of the pie or whatever, it just, it doesn't work. You can only work on what's within your grasp and what's within your control. Yeah,
1: and it doesn't complete anything to be focused on their 97%. I mean, it's going to come up because it's just organic for us. You know, when we're traumatized, the process of the recovery from trauma includes ruminating and going over something over and over and again and again. And usually what we're doing is we're going over our victimized story, which is which is truthfully a partial narrative that doesn't actually feed us much power. And I always talk about breakups as a, as a crossroads and many go on to live a lesser life in the aftermath of a breakup. Because if you're stuck in the victimization, then you really can't trust yourself to ever open your heart like this again. And, uh, you know, people say time will heal all wounds. But I haven't found that to be necessarily true when it comes to a breakup, because time will definitely lessen the acuteness of the pain that we're in. But the heart may heal like kind of a little bit defended or a little bit too untrusting of love moving forward. And it's almost like the equivalent, like if you broke your leg and you just let it heal of its own accord, you might walk with a limp for the rest of your life, right? So we really want to understand how to kind of set that wound. Look, nobody wants to ever go through this. When they're going through it, it's a horrible experience. But the one thing we can say is, let's not have this ever happen again. So let's do this really thoroughly and properly. Part of what you're doing that I love is you're preventing people from, or supporting them to not create negative karma, for lack of a better word. Karma is like... You know, action and then results. So a lot of people, when they're in the throes of rage or profound hurt, where they, you know, want want to get back at the person who's hurting them, will make choices that are to punish or to retaliate. And so it's almost like we're planting bitter seeds in our backyard. And if we have children in particular, we're all going to be eating from those bitter fruits for many years to come. So part of why I created conscious uncoupling is, okay, look, this was never going to be easy. This was always going to be hard, but let's keep everything from going into the gutter. Let's just try keeping ourselves on track for taking the high road one choice at a time. The other thing where people ask me a lot is, do couples have to do this together? And I knew yeah, that even, was
0: my next question. You're okay. a mind reader. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> well, cause I get asked it all the time, you know, the same thing, you know, what I want to do all of this. I want to do the work on myself. I'm prepared to put the emotional investment in, but my partner won't. Is there anything I can do to make my situation better? Or is it a kind of, it's got to be both of us or, you know, nothing's going to change.
1: No, actually it, 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 it requires a lot of the one person who's doing it by themselves, but it's particularly if you have children, it's a must, ha- it must do because if you don't, then the person with what I call the least amount of consciousness, the narcissist or the sociopathic person or whatever your, you know, diagnosis is of that person, the alcoholic person, they're in charge of the relationship, which is disastrous. So you have got to reach down deep and you have to, you know, it's hard because it's again, not fair, but I have seen remarkable, almost miraculous transitions from the person who has the greatest level of health, making the decision to be the leader of how this is going to go and to continually. And this now gets into the the fourth step where we're now dealing with the other person and uh, things like acts of generosity, for example. Or setting an intention for how this is going to go and sharing it with your partner. Or I teach an exercise in how to actually clear the air of festering hurts and resentments, mm-hmm. which is a really okay. then-
0: big one. Tell us about that, because that's I think lots of people would be interested in that one. Oh my gosh.
1: Well, so if you and and let's just ride the coattails of this conversation where we're talking about one person who's more conscious and the other person doesn't really want to do it. So if you have children, there's obviously a lot at stake. And as we all know, parenthood is not for the faint of heart, and it will require more than we ever could possibly have imagined going in. So this is one of those times. And you have to almost give up the idea that the other person's ever going to really understand you. And if the other person is resentful of you, what you can do to begin to calm them down is to really get related to how life is occurring for them. Now, you know, my my dear friend, Polly Young-Eisendrath, who's a couples relationship here in the States, quite brilliant. She wrote a book called Love Between Equals. She talks about how we're all in our individual snow globes. And Terence Reel, who's a wonderful relationship expert, says that objective reality has no place in intimate love. So this is one of those moments. We are not talking about what's right or what's wrong or really how it really happened. You have to get that you're probably never going to agree on that. But if this is your children's father or your children's mother, and you can see that they don't ha- they're not necessarily growth oriented. And they do have a tendency to go to war, you have to do a preemptive strike to begin to de-escalate them as much as you can for the sake of your children. So you might call them and say, Look, I get that you're angry with me. And I frankly would love to hear what you're still incomplete with, to see if there's any way I can make an amends. So there's three pieces to a completion. One is an apology, the other is an acknowledgement of the impact on an emotional level, on the other person. And then the third piece is an amends. Most of us, when we go to apologize, we do that. but if you only did this, or I only did this because my mother did this. So we come with a psychological explanation, or we're still trying to get the other person to understand their impact on us. So you almost have to suspend that. And just be willing to really get their reality, whether you agree with it or not. And you can say, I can get that that was really hurtful and really offensive to you. And I can hear how humiliated you felt. I did not mean to impact you that way. And I'm so sorry that that's how you experienced it. And now that you've educated me, the amends is here. I will do my best to never do that again. But once you start to say that, it begins to restore a bit of wholeness to the field, right? So we're working with limited people. And even when two people are doing this together, we're all kind of limited in our own ways. So we're, we're really giving up in that conversation, the need to be understood by that person in service to conscious completion, and again, you know, we're learning our lessons. We're bringing them into the next relationship. If you have somebody who's healthier and wants to do it with you, you can take turns. And again, you have to give up. We're, we're not going back to rehash who's right about this. Going in to have a clearing of the field. This is why your, your children are not, you know, walking on eggshells, because even if you're polite. Which a lot of those of us who aspire to amicable endings are polite on the surface, but
0: you are, you know, really triggering underneath. Yeah, yeah, the yeah.
1: Kids can feel all that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think kids pick up on the atmosphere in a house and between parents, even if parents often say, "Oh, well, no, I'm sure the kids don't know anything," and then. Five minutes later, we're talking about the fact that one child said something to the one parent or and it's really obvious that the kids might not have the words for it. They might not want to say it out loud and confront in quite that way. But it's clear from some of the conversations that are going on within the household that kids have picked up, even if they can't accurately name it or say what it is, that they're feeling it. Oh, I think that's really interesting. It's really hard to say that to a parent as well that your kids actually are seeing, you know, they are feeling it and they are part of this conversation. But that's wonderful. I love the idea. Ultimately, you know, amicable is all about working with couples and both people being on the same page. We know how hard that is for lots of couples. So I always feel relieved when there is, you know, some hope that you can start this, perhaps you can start it on your own, perhaps the other person will or won't come on board. But there is that way of making the situation more amicable and better even as one person, but that, what you say, I can even feel myself as you were saying it, trying to relate that to my own kind of circumstance and thinking, God, can I pick the phone up and say that to my ex? I mean, we're 10 years down the line and I'm thinking, could, could I actually, could I do that? And I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to commit to anything on the podcast, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. It's it's tough to be able to do that apology properly and have the three elements all there and not want to still be projecting that element of yes, but, and just trying to make that fairness point keeps ultimately coming back. So I see what you say, like you said at the beginning about the sense of fairness being hardwired into us. It's such a knee-jerk reaction. And I always ask people when people come to our service and they say, we just want a fair agreement. And I always get them to unpack this fair word, because the fair word is the killer of all agreements, I think. If I think it's so hard to get beyond it.
1: Yeah. So I, I think that also we want to remember, you know, some people don't have children. And what they're aspiring to is then to not be limited in love in their own lives, but to really get all the lessons that they can so that they can go on and apply them and have even happier love on the other side of this. Or if somebody feels like they're being left by someone who they think still is the right person for them. And they're never going to find anyone like them. I tell them you better outgrow the person that you've known yourself to be and become a healthier version of yourself because the healthier version of yourself would not be interested in someone who was not really committed to you.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it, isn't it? To say that actually you have to do the growth to be able to let go of the idea that your soulmates walked off into the distance either with Another person, or on their own, or whatever. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. So, and then relationships really have two faces. One is the public face, uh, in addition to the private face. We're working a lot, you know, with the private face of relationship. But in conscious uncoupling, we take everybody into account, not just the children, but the in laws and the neighbors and the long term friends. So, how do we bring the whole community with us to kind of bless this new form of family that we're taking on. And so we have different ways of doing that. I mean, to the extreme, those who are, you know, a bit more open-minded about these things, they might do a conscious uncoupling ceremony with their family and friends. Otherwise, I tell people, you know, over a holiday, invite everybody to one of someone's home and toast to the gifts of this relationship and to the new form our family is taking and may all be happy and may all be blessed. And so that everyone's in agreement relationally about where we're going and nobody's pulling on us saying, well, I never liked him anyway. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean, people do worry about how to tell that's become, I've noticed that a lot more In recent years that people are much more conscious of feeling they need to make a statement to their friends and family. Whereas before, if you're doing it as a single person, if you're just divorcing in your own kind of private lane, you just have your own narrative and you tell your story, don't you? And it's divisive in a sense. Whereas if you're actually divorcing as a couple, there is much more of a need to be on the same page. Just the same way people ask us, how do we tell the children about this? What do we say? And, you know, we, we do coaching sessions on how to talk to children about getting divorced or separating. And it it's now increasingly common that people are saying, and who do we tell and what order and how do we? And I, I think some of that is led by the superstars who put out PR statements or stuff on their Twitter or their Instagram or whatever. And I guess now we're all in that sort of media kind of savvy world it's the same it's how do you do you just suddenly change your relationship status on facebook or what do you do what's the right way of communicating to your circle in a way that you're doing it as you say together and that's not divisive but that celebrates and we always say this is some. it's a sad thing it's not a bad thing and making that distinction and allowing people to actually say and we are able to move on with happiness and you know hearts that are open to new possibilities i think is such a lovely a lovely way of doing it and it takes the sting out of all of this for everybody
1: yeah and to say to people you know we're both it's it's difficult for us you know it's not like we're united happy about this it is a sad time but to say to people we're doing this in a way that's kind we're committed to kindness and we're committed to our children having a happy childhood So we ask you not to take sides. We ask you to pray for both of us, to continue your friendship with both of us. And when you're talking about family members, I have kind of a a funny tongue-in-cheek thing about, you know, call up your mother-in-law and say, I want you to still be my mother. Maybe you could be my mother outlaw. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, And, you know, you have to train people. Like I had to train my mother when I got divorced. I had to call my mother because her first response was to support me by, by saying, you grab that house and you tell, you know, whatever. And, blah, blah, blah. and I stopped her and I said, thank you for your support. And Mark is still your son-in-law. And I hope you honor him as the, the, the father of your granddaughter. Always, because that's how I'm relating to him. He's my daughter's father, and he will always have a place of respect and honor. So I'm not bad mouthing him. It wasn't, you know, he said, she said, no one's at fault. This is just what's happening. And then she took it to the extreme. She started getting him nicer gifts than she was getting me for Christmas. I about that. <laughs> but you're
0: right. The idea that you have to lead the way and you have to train the friends and family because the natural instinct is to protect and part of protection is attacking the other person, isn't it? It's, again, probably hardwired and very natural. We like to other people and we like to keep our tribe close. So, yeah, I get that. Actually, I often say to people... You are the experts in your divorce. Nobody else is going to know how to treat you when you're divorced. You are going to have to teach them and tell them and demonstrate to them. And you're going to have to support your partner with your friends in order to get those conversations on the right track and to steer them in a way that's going to allow you to stay respectful to each other because people just don't get it. They just don't know how to do it. We don't talk about this very often. Divorce is still a taboo subject. There's still a sense of shame and guilt that goes with it, and we have to therefore use what we learn in our ability to consciously uncouple, and we have to take it out into the world with us, don't we? I think that's 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 our mission. <laughs> Beautiful. I, I just love what you're doing, Kate. Really. Oh, ditto. I think you've you've made such a difference. To the narrative, and you've inspired us to do this. The whole idea of being able to divorce, separate, or end a relationship in a kinder and better way. That's our whole mission and our whole vision at Amicable to end help people end relationships in kinder and better ways. So I want to say a massive thank you. And it's been such a privilege talking to you. I can't thank you enough for joining us. I could listen to you forever and a day and i hope that you'll come back and do another podcast with us as well in the future. But Catherine for now, thank you so much for joining us. Just remind us, where can people find you if they want to find out more about the work that you've done?
1: Conscious com is always a resource. If people are listening uh, soon after this has been uh, posted, this particular conversation, they might be able to join us for a free program that we're offering called The Art of Conscious Completion, How to Avoid the Three Most Common Breakup Mistakes that Cause Suffering, Steal Joy, and Prevent Future Love. But we have courses, we have trainings, we have a coach training this fall, we have all sorts of things that we're doing where we're really supporting the work to grow in the
0: world. That's wonderful. Thank you. And of course you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Kate underscore Daily. And hear more about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe for updates by visiting the divorcepodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening.